Driving cattle over the various trails was by no means an easy or unassailable task. The cowboy was forced to cope with the perils of the frontier. These perils included terrible roads, rough weather, cattle stampedes, and requiring men to pass through Indian territory to reach their destinations. In addition, the Indians encountered often demanded tributes from the cowboy as compensation for being allowed to traverse their lands. Wild West Podcast proudly presents Hazards on the Trail Part 1, Big Blue, Firefox, and River Crossings. Make sure you stay with us after today's podcast as Mike and I discuss the unwritten rules of the cowboy on the trail. As much as we like to romanticize cattle drives, they were more complicated than we imagine. Hours were long, food was monotonous, horses were bad, cattle was worse, and sleep was hard to come by. Yet despite the hardships, many young men during the second half of the 19th century answered the call for trail hands. The allure of trailing thousands of cattle over wild lands and visiting far-off cattle towns like Abilene, Dodge City, and Ellsworth was too much to resist. Like most adventures, the extended drive had mix of hot sun, dust storms, thunderous rain, and treacherous river crossings, along with merriment and peril. Follow us now as we look at some of the cowboy tales describing the dangers of a cattle drive. While these cowboy experiences cannot give us a complete look at every threat the cowboy faces, they should paint a general picture that will help us understand the known hazards. No matter which direction the drives took, they all faced roughly the same set of perils. Stampedes, river crossings, and Indian attacks. The drive from Texas to Kansas took a month or more. The time it took to drive cattle north depended on the part of Texas from which the herd started and the luck the outfit encountered on the way. The cost of the drive usually was assessed at a dollar a head. On the trails, there were no farms to sell warm meals to the drovers and corn for the cattle. A description by an unidentified rider in the late 1870s labeled the ordinary details of a drive from Texas who wrote about the difficulties of managing a herd during a long drive. A herd traveling with calves cannot make 12 miles a day. A mixed herd, that is, one of various ages and both sexes, is the easiest to control. A beef herd of four-year-olds is the most difficult. The slightest disturbance at night may stampede them. The first symptom of the alarm is snorting. Then, if the guards are numerous and alert so that the cattle cannot easily break away, they will begin milling, crowding together with their heads toward a common center, their horns clashing, and the whole body in confused rotary motion, which increases, and unless controlled, ends in a concentrated outbreak in stampede. The most effectual way of quieting the cattle is by the cowboys circling around and around the terrified herd, singing loudly and steadily. At the same time, too, the guards strive to disorder the milling by breaking up the common movement, separating a bunch here and there from the mass, and turning them off so that the sympathy of panic shall be dispersed. Their attention is distracted, as it is in part, no doubt, by the singing. 
the somber surroundings of a wild country at night with the accompanying strange sounds, the tramp, the clashing of horns, the bellowing of alarm, and the shouted song of the cowboys are very weird. The lead steers were ambitious, were born with a certain bossy mentality, and wanted to go first. So they kept in the lead, often helping to start a herd across a river. The most famous of these lead steers was Charles Goodnight's Old Blue. Old Blue, sometimes called Blue the Bell Ox, was known from the Pecos to Arkansas, Colorado, and all of Texas. Old Blue couldn't stand the sight of something in front of him. He passed all the other steers until he got into the lead. A tall, gunmetal blue steer, the cowboys called his color Mulberry, with wide horns, Old Blue commanded the point position on eight trips from the Palo Duro Canyon, where Goodnight's famous J.A. Ranch was located, to Dodge City, Kansas. When Goodnight bought Old Blue as a four-year-old, one of a group of 5,000, the young steer showed signs of natural leadership. He seemed to have a steady quality that calmed the other flighty longhorns. Early on, Goodnight noticed that after bedding down for the night, the cattle took up the same position in the herd the next morning they had occupied the day before. So Goodnight hung a bell around Old Blue's neck, taking benefit of this insight. Before long, the rest of the herd grew accustomed to heeding the sound of the bell as it led up the Great Western Cattle Trail. Old Blue knew the trail to Dodge City better than the cowboys. So every morning he took his position at the head of the herd, and there he held it during the long trail drives. Assertive, temperate, collected, and with the bell around his neck ringing with each shake of his whole head to usher the way, he taught thousands of longhorns over the trail, showing himself to be worth a dozen extra cowboys. When Old Blue was twenty years old, he died, leaving a legacy of faithful hard work and leadership over the good night loving trail and other trails. He was the most esteemed longhorn in Western cattle trail history. The importance of having good lead steers was shown in an item in the Dallas Herald in the spring of 1873. A herd of 1,200 cattle stampeded within the town of Dallas. That is, all but two of them did. The two that didn't take fright, reported the Herald, had led the drive from when its owners started out. During the alarm of the rest of the drove, they stood motionless. The drivers had the satisfaction of seeing the frightened cattle return and gather round the more composed leaders. One of the God-created splendors in the Old West included the foxfire on big cattle drives. As the cowboys drove their herds across the plains in the 1870s and 80s, they'd come upon thunderous summer storms entering Indian Territory and the Kansas Plains. These electrical storms with lightning flashes caused the sulfur to hang heavily in the air. Sometimes in the darkness of these storms, the horn tips of the cattle, the ears of the horses, and the hat brims of the cowboys shined with luminous light. The air thick with sulfur became suffocating, causing what was known to them as foxfire. So often, this early-day foxfire continued until the herd was bathed in an incandescent glow. This eerie glow was like a science fiction story or a bad dream. The cowboys called it St. Elmo's Fire. S.H. Woods of Alice, Texas, wrote in his account of Texas cowboys at a circus in Minneapolis, 
his account of a Fox fire during the thunderstorm outside of Dodge City. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. When we arrived within 8 or 10 miles of Dodge City, Kansas, a beautiful city situated on the north bank of the Arkansas River, and about one month's drive from Red River, we could see about 50 different trail herds grazing up and down the valley of the Arkansas River. That night, we had a terrible storm. Talk about thunder and lightning. There's where you could see the phosphorescence on the horse's ear and smell sulfur. We saw the storm approaching, and every man, including the rustler, was out on duty. About 10 o'clock at night, we were greeted with a terribly loud clap of thunder and a flash of lightning which killed one of our lead steers just behind me. That started the ball rolling. Between the rumbling, roaring, and rattling of hooves, horns, thunder, and lightning, it made an old cowpuncher long for headquarters, or to be in his line camp at some dugout on the banks of some little stream. After the first break, we were unable to control the cattle longer, for just as soon as we could get them quiet, some other herd would run into us and give us a fresh start. Finally, so many herds had run together that it was impossible to tell our cattle from the others. When lightning flashed, we could see thousands of cattle and hundreds of men all over the prairie, so we turned everything loose and waited patiently for daybreak. The next morning, all the different outfits got together, and we had a general roundup. It took about a week to get everything all straightened out and trim up the herds. The cowboys described a St. Elmo's fire as balls, often of a blue or violet hue, centered on an object. They appeared spherical and glowed like fire. Occasionally, a hissing or crackling sound was heard, not unlike plasma balls. E.C. Teddy Blue Abbott provides a first-hand account of the hazards of a lightning storm during a cattle drive. Lots of cowpunchers were killed by lightning, which is a known fact. I was knocked off my horse by it twice. The first time I saw a ball of fire coming my way and felt something strike me on the head. When I came to, I was lying under old Pete and the rain was pouring down on my face. The second time, I was trying to get under a railroad bridge when it hit me and I came into the ditch. The cattle were always restless when there was a storm at night, even if it was a long way off, and that was when any little thing would start a run. Lots of times I have ridden around the herd with lightning playing and thunder muttering in the distance, when the air was so full of electricity that I would see it flashing on the horns of the cattle, and there would be balls of it on the horse's ears, and even on my mustache. Little balls about the size of a pea. I suppose it was static electricity, the same as when you shake a blanket on a dark winter night. 
I'm sure you can imagine the peril in trying to get several thousand head of cattle from one side of a deep river to the other. They would have to find the best spot to cross, taking into account the water's depth, current speed, and how steep the banks were, and how swollen from rain or snowmelt. Sometimes the cowboys would strip down to their bare skin to keep from getting their clothes wet, especially in the cold season. In Echoes of the Cattle Trail, Jerry M. Nance of Kyle, Texas, wrote of his experience of crossing the Washita River naked. I left Hayes County, Texas on April 15, 1877, bound for Cheyenne, Wyoming, with 2,100 head of cattle, 40 head of ponies, and two yoke of oxen with the chuck wagon. From here, we made the trip all right until we reached the North Canadian, which was also on a rise and all over the bottom lands. We waited for several days for the floodwaters to subside, but all to no use. In the meantime, other herds had come in sight, and for fear of bad nights and a mix-up, I decided to make a raft and go across. The cattle were started across and were going fine when it came up a terrific hailstorm, which interrupted the proceedings. One man was across on the other side of the river naked with his horse and saddle and about half of the herd, and the balance of us were on this side with the other half of the herd and all the supplies. There was no timber on our side of the river, and when the hail began pelting, the boys and myself made a break for the wagon for shelter. We were all naked, and the hail came down so furiously that within a short time it was about two inches deep on the ground. It must have hailed considerably up the river, for the water was so cold we could not get any more of the herd across that day. We were much concerned about getting help to the man across the river. We tried all evening to get one of the boys over to carry the fellow some clothes and help look after the cattle, but failed in each attempt. We could not see him nor the cattle on account of the heavy timber on the other side, and the whole bottom was covered with water, so that it was impossible for him to come near enough to us when we called him. The water was so cold that horse nor man could endure it, and in trying to cross over, several of them came near drowning and were forced to turn back, so the man on the other side had to stay over there all night alone and naked. Once a suitable crossing was found, the man of the cattle drive would have to lead the cattle into the water, watch to be sure there were none swept downstream in the current, and pray they could find solid footing on the bank on the far side to get out of the river again. When cattle did get caught in the current and swept away, someone had to ride along the banks of the river to find the animal, hoping it made it out alive. In Days Gone By, a story written by Hiram G. Craig, provides detailed description of what it was like to cross the Colorado River with a herd of cattle. On our way, we came to the Colorado River at LaGrange and found the stream on a rampage. We were told of a man that had been drowned at this crossing three days before in trying to cross a herd of cattle. The man had all his clothes on besides a six-shooter. In swimming across, he had taken the left point, or lead, to point the cattle across. The cattle began milling in the stream and tried to turn back. He had made the point on his horse, but got into the bunch of milling cattle and both he and his horse went under. He was found two days later, some 400 yards below the crossing. This brought up the questions. 
who would venture to point our herd across, and what would it cost to have them pointed. Crowds of people had come from LaGrange to witness the spectacle of a large herd of cattle swimming across the river. There were men, women, and children, all eager to see. I was about the poorest swimmer in the outfit, but had lots of experience in my time, no doubt more than the rest altogether. Holt sauntered up to me and asked if I was afraid to point the herd, and what would I charge extra to pull off the stunt. I confessed to him that I was not a good swimmer and was afraid of water, but that I was a hired hand and would not shirk my duty. I had a first-class pony for the work and told him that I would point the herd if allowed to strip my clothes. He told me the work had to be done, women or no women. When everything was arranged, I stripped, mounted my pony bareback, and took the left or lower point. I struck the water with the cattle and stayed near the lead until they saw the opposite bank. Then I let out for the bank and crossed the cattle without a mishap. If the rivers were swollen, they might choose to delay the crossing until the water levels reached a less threatening level, but this also presented difficulties. The cattle drives were busy, and many drives would be traveling the same way. So, in delaying a river crossing, you ran the risk of a cattle drive traffic jam, where several herds were stacked up and waiting. This led to the risk of herds becoming intermixed if the cowboys weren't diligent to keep them separate. The following is an excerpt by G.H. Mole providing his actual account of crossing the North Fork of the Canadian River during a trail drive to Abilene, Kansas. When we reached the North Fork of the Canadian River, it was also pretty high on account of heavy rains. The water was level with the bank on this side, but on the far side the bank was about six feet above the water, and the going out place being only about 20 feet wide. We had trouble getting the cattle into the water, and when they did get started, they crowded in so that they could not get out on the other side, and began milling, and we lost 116 head and three horses. When we arrived at the Arkansas River, we found it out of its banks, and we were compelled to wait several days for it to run down. We were out of provisions and tried to purchase some from a government train which was camped at this point. The wagon train was loaded with flour and bacon en route to Fort Sill. The man in charge refused to sell us anything, so when the guard was absent, we borrowed enough grub to last us until we could get some more. When the flood stage had passed, we crossed the river. We reached Abilene, Kansas in the latter part of June, camping there a month and finally sold the cattle to Mr. Evans of California for $25 per head, with the understanding that Black Bill Montgomery, Bill Henderson, myself, and Gov, the Negro cook, were to go along with the cattle. Mr. Evans also bought the horses. Brad, the famous Western writer Zane Gray first chronicled in his 1934 novel of the Code of the West, stated that no written code ever actually existed between the cowboys who traveled the trail. However, the hardy pioneers who lived in the West were bound by these unwritten rules. I would like to take some time exploring this code of the West as it applied to fair play, loyalty, and respect for the land. Let's first talk about fair play. 
I, I love talking about the the code of the West or you know the the cowboy code. Uh, there's been so many of them uh, written over the years, going back to probably the first that I can think of from the the, the character the Lone Ranger, uh, which actually debuted as a radio character uh, even a year before Zane Gray started talking about the the code of the West. You know these codes were. All the, the great cowboy characters had one uh, from the 30s through really the, the 50s. Uh, Lone Ranger, Cisco Kid, Hopalong Cassidy uh, had one. Gene Autry had one. Roy Rogers had his own version of the, the cowboy code. Published on pulp magazines, uh, comic books, lunch boxes, uh, all, every bit of memorabilia. Uh, that appealed to to young boys uh, who were lovers of the the Hollywood cowboy way of life, and I do believe that it does re- truly stem from the the unwritten code of honor that these men had. You had to have some sort uh, to survive uh, when you lived apart from civilization for much of your your life and career. You you had to have some sort of civilization uh, amongst yourselves, I guess, might be the most complicated but simple way of saying it at the same time. Uh, and these were obvious. Uh, you can almost just write them as a cowboy version of the old Ten Commandments. Uh, you know, give your enemy a fighting chance. Uh, never steal another man's horse. The, one of the, the greatest crimes that you could have in the West was leaving a man afoot. You know, you could take his wife, his kids, his burn his house down, but don't you steal, steal his horse. Never make a threat. Threats are worthless unless you plan on backing them up. Never shoot an unarmed or unwarned enemy, which goes back to, you know, always give your enemy a fighting chance. The, this is just basic basic human dignity uh, and respect for it. Brad, uh, you mentioned uh, some of the elements of Code of the West. I'm interested really in how that played out on the trail especially when there was no law, there was no rules to go by, and how these cowboys uh, on the trail treated one another, either with respect or uh, challenged them for being disrespected. Uh, well, you, you kind of hit on an interesting point there, Mike, where there, there is no law. Each man effectively becomes a law unto himself. However, they are, especially these cowboys on the trail drives, it's almost its own little form of uh, feudal government, uh, their own individual society. And every other trail driving herd coming up the trail is a, a foreign country uh, with their own government to which they can either compete or cooperate uh, as needed to get make sure that everyone effectively gets up the trail safe and alive. Uh, but most importantly is your own outfit. Uh, these guys had to look out for each other. If they didn't, death or serious injury was often just uh, just on the other side of the riverbank, if not right in the middle. And because of this, they they had to watch out for it, uh, each other. Being a friend when he needs one, uh, hospitable to strangers. You never knew when you yourself might be left afoot or alone in the wilderness, so to speak, and dependent on the the kindness of others. So again, going back to the golden rule. Uh, do unto others. A cowboy was always first and foremost loyal to his brand. Still today, it's kind of entered the vernacular, riding for the brand. Uh, that's where this comes from. 
your, your survival depends on the survival of your outfit and your loyalty to that uh, means everything. That's it for now. Remember to check out our Wild West podcast shows on iTunes podcast or at wildwestpodcast.buzzsprout.com. You can also catch us on Facebook at facebook.com slash wildwestpodcast or on our YouTube channel at Whiskey and Westerns on Wednesday. So make sure you subscribe to our shows listed at the end of the description text of this podcast to receive notifications on all new episodes. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you have any comments or would like to add to this series on cattle drives, cowboys, and cattle towns, you can write us at wildwestpodcast at gmail.com and we will share your thoughts as they apply to future episodes. Join us next time as we visit part two of Hazards on the Trail entitled Stampedes, Jayhawkers, and Indian Troubles. He always sings raggy music to the cattle as he swings back and forth in the saddle on a horse. That a syncopated gator There's such a funny meter To the roar of his repeater How they run When they hear the fellas gun Because the western folks all know He's a highfalutin rootin' tootin' Son of a gun from Arizona Ragtime cowboy Joe Play hold on, hold on, hold on.